Welcome to another wonderful edition of the podcast, On the Road Edition. I am traveling. It is your favorite type of edition of the podcast because the audio quality sucks and it lets you know that really the only time I have for you as a listener is when I'm doing something else. And so that doesn't make you feel like a priority immediately. I don't know what's going to do it. (laughs) First and foremost, I want to thank my exclusive gold and silver providers, my long-term friends over at JM Bullion. I love JM Bullion. Great place to buy your gold and silver bullion. They have been supporters of my podcast, no matter whether I'm doing it in the car or in my 400-square-foot studio apartment or, oh, that's really the only two places that I do it. The point is they, they have never given me beef about anything. And I think they have great inventory, great service. They ship discreetly. Their prices are fair. And so I love ordering from JM Bullion. QTR podcast listeners have their own rep at JM Bullion, the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. Shoot her an email, and she would be happy to help you out. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. I got big things coming up with Sang Lucci at some point. Soon to be discussed, I was watching one of his live streams from his trade space in Puerto Rico yesterday. Lucci is on Twitch. Check him out at Sang Lucci on Twitter. You can actually watch this maniac trade all day on his live stream. You know, when I'm trading like a psychopath, which is pretty much all the time, I like to do it, uh, you know, discreetly with the lights off in a corner of my apartment where nobody could see me. And, uh, and I've only got myself to blame when I beef a trade. Lucci has big balls. He does it on the uh, Twitch live stream, but it's great to watch. Great guy, Lucci. And the Steam Room is a wonderful community of traders. If you're a day trader, if you look at the options market, check out the Steam Room. Well worth it. Lucci will give you a free trial. Just reach out to him. Let him know that QTR sent you. He'll make sure you get taken care of. And this podcast finally also brought to you by my kind friend, George Gammon, over at Rebel Capitalist Pro, one of the only other great services uh, on the web that I would take the time to actually read, listen to, and digest. Rebel Capitalist Pro is George, who's teamed up with Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, and Brent Johnson to help you preserve your wealth in an out-of-control world of central banks that have catalyzed the shit sandwich that we are in the process of taking our first bite of here. More on that later. But uh, the Rebel Capitalist forums are fantastic to read. They do live Q&As with Brent Johnson and George and Lynn Alden. Tons of great information on macro. I love George Gammon. He's a great guy. He's been a friend of mine for years, just as all my patrons and supporters have been. And if you still support me on Patreon, I saw a new supporter the other day. I just want to thank you guys so much uh, for your continued support. It means a lot and it keeps me motivated to do podcasts because sometimes I just don't feel like it. Sometimes you don't feel like talking. Sometimes you just want to keep your thoughts to yourself or you're not feeling uh, very type A. But I always think, man, all right, well, I know there's people out there that are waiting to hear what I have to say next. And uh, if you don't subscribe to my Substack yet, I've been trying to put out some free pieces on my Substack as well, not keep everything behind the paywall. But if you do, if you're a free or paid subscriber to the Substack, it's called Fringe Finance, and I thank you very much for that as well. Um, I'll keep writing and I'll keep talking for as long as you guys want. 
Um, that's my, my promise. I won't shut up until you guys lose interest or tell me to shut up and everybody goes away. All right. So what's going on? Anything new, gang? Anything? I'll just give you a second. Just kind of look around. Anything in the news lately? Oh, other than the collapse of the second largest bank in U.S. history? Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? (laughs) Well, as I wrote on my Substack, how the hell do you not see that one coming? It's like that Dennis Leary comedy special where he's talking about Lou Gehrig's disease. He's like, hey, Lou, people used to tell him all the time, there's a disease with your name written all over it. (laughs) How do you not see that one coming? But uh, yeah, with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which to the best of my understanding, represented the absolute worst of the excess that we have become used to and accustomed to thanks to decades of -of out-of-control monetary policy. So I'll give you a quick primer on what I mean by that. You know, for the last 20 years, the Federal Reserve has encouraged speculation and excess. That's what happens when rates are at zero. You're encouraging people, you know, the the behavioral uh, analysis behind it is you're encouraging people to borrow and you're encouraging people to take on debt. When rates are low, the cost of money is low. And so it's advantageous for people to borrow at those points. And when you spin up the debt flywheel, all of a sudden everybody's got more capital than they know what to do with. So what do they do? Well, they pay themselves a good portion of it, right? Which is why these executives at Silicon Valley Bank are going to walk away with huge paydays. But on top of that, you just piss the rest away. And that's what has happened here. Um, You know, this was a VC startup bank, which means that it invested in the early stages of companies that do not, certainly don't have track records of cash generation or of profitability, but really the type of company that Wall Street has rewarded over the last 10 years which is any company that can grow revenue regardless of any other underlying fundamental financials of the business. So the theme on Wall Street has been if you've got a story and you've got growing revenue, we're going to be able to take you public, you know, through a SPAC or otherwise, and we're going to be able to get you funded like this VC bank was funding companies, regardless of whether or not your financials are sound enough to be able to repay uh, what you've taken on or, you know, show the market that you can continue and at some point generate cash. Because when you invest in a company, you're buying a portion of the company. You're buying a portion of the equity of the company. And so ultimately, what does that mean you're looking for? It means that at some point, you would like the company to become profitable. Because otherwise, what do you own? You own nothing. You own a slice of thin air. But when a company becomes profitable, that's when you want to own a portion of it. Because that's what ultimately, at the end of the day, gives equity its value. Is the company's ability to generate cash. And then that cash can ultimately be returned to shareholders. um, 
and also to insiders. Thing is, insiders kind of get paid right away because while a company is burning through cash and isn't profitable, they still pay their staff. So many of the executives of a lot of these dog shit companies wind up walking away with millions and millions of dollars despite the fact that many of these companies never turn a profit. Um, but ultimately, when you're buying stock in a company, what, what you're betting on, whether you know it or not, and if the market ever returns to some semblance of reality, it'll become a little bit clearer. What you're betting on is you're betting on the stream of the company's future cash flows um, to eventually become worth more than what the equity has priced in today. So you're betting on growth, but really you're betting on bottom line and cash flow growth. You're not you're not betting on revenue growth. I mean, the revenue growth, the top line growth has to be there to grow the bottom line. So you want to see revenue growth continue. But when it comes down to brass tacks, revenue growth doesn't mean anything unless you can grow the bottom line. You know, I can take $10 bills and walk around on the street and sell them for $5 until I'm blue in the face. I could do that forever. And if I employed more people to do that, I could grow my top line. The top line would be the $5 that I take in from selling the $10. It's the bottom line, though, that would get hit because you can't run a business selling 10 for five. So after the, you know, while the top line is growing, costs and operating expenses, the amount that I have to pay the staff and the cost of goods sold, essentially $10 per $10 bill, those would go up the more that I sell. And so what good of a company is that? Just because it can grow its revenue, it's not good at all. Because eventually it just, you run out of money to go through. So at some point people will stop funding you because nobody wants to watch you sell 10 for five anymore because it doesn't make any fucking sense. And that is the financial shape that most of these early stage Silicon Valley companies are in. They've got a big idea. They've got a great PowerPoint deck. They've got a vision. They may even have an Adam Newman style visionary. But at the end of the day, if you're selling 10 for five, it doesn't mean shit. Now, when rates are low, you can perpetuate this nonsense because there's plenty of liquidity, meaning there's a million people out there that'll lend me 10 so I can go sell it for five because I'm promising them at some point I'll be able to sell 10 for 15. Although it's not likely to happen because there can't be any demand for 10s at $15. But I'm telling people that, and there's plenty of liquidity, and rates are low, and so there's an incentive to borrow, and so the floodgates are open in terms of liquidity. It's when rates go up that this liquidity dries up, because then the cost that I have to pay to take on debt rises, and my operating expenses, you know, all of my expenses actually rise at the same time. Not just my operating expenses, but, you know, my cost of my debt rises as well. Uh, and so then credit kind of tightens up and, you know, lenders start looking a little bit more uh, strictly about who has the credentials to lend to. Um, and borrowers start looking a little closer at what's it going to cost me to take on this money 
And long story short, I mean, liquidity dries up. So, you know, where there was once somebody willing to lend and somebody willing to borrow around every corner, now all of a sudden it's, you know, every, every fifth corner. And so without the liquidity, all of a sudden a lot of these companies that aren't producing anything um, have trouble continuing operations because they can't fund themselves. And in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, you know, these guys had purchased a bunch of uh, treasuries, I think, while rates were low. Um, And when bond prices fell, that's what happens when rates go up, the price of a bond falls. You know, they had to kind of fire sale some of their assets. And that spooked the market. And then there was a run on the bank and everybody wanted their their cash back. So you have, you know, these very risky companies, um, involved with a, uh, with a bank that's kind of being forced to deleverage. And once that secret got out, all hell broke loose. Um, not just with Silicon Valley bank, but with, you know, other regional banks and other banks that do similar types of services. So now there will be contagion from that event. I mean, everything depends on what the fed does on Monday. But contagion occurs because you have other companies that have their cash at this bank. And so uninsured deposits will likely be completely lost because the bank is insolvent. Meaning, you know, the risk that these companies took on by keeping their cash at this bank has now been borne out, essentially. Um, You know, this is that great example of why banks should always have to compete to take on people's money and show them that they're safe havens for people's assets. But that doesn't happen anymore uh, because we don't have a free market, which is something that Peter Schiff talks about all the time. But these people are kind of finding that out now the hard way that, all right, well, this bank just wasn't safe. And when you underestimate that type of risk, your cash just kind of goes up in thin air. And so now all of the companies that have lost cash from Silicon Valley Bank are going to be forced to either try, you know, many of them will be forced to try to find new capital. Some of them will go under, I'm sure. But when those companies go to scramble to try and find new capital, all that does is send another kind of panic message to the market. And if they need to go and sell equity to do it, um, or they need to go and try and tap debt at a point where there's no liquidity. All it's going to do is create a self-fulfilling and, and reinforcing cycle that all of a sudden there's a mad dash for liquidity. And so you have not just regular traditional companies with fiat, but you know you had this um, one stablecoin, uh, the USDC that had some of their reserves with the bank. And so that has now uh, de-pegged from the uh, one-to-one that it's supposed to trade at, and I think was trading at 90 cents yesterday. That will have a rippling effect through crypto because um, to the extent that anybody is holding that asset as collateral, um, they're going to uh, now probably engage in collateral calls with whoever their counterparties are. And round and round the cycle of fun goes, until at some point we either uh, get capitulation and, and, 
and wind up hitting the bottom of a credit cycle, which we're nowhere near yet, or the Fed comes in and says, we're going to open up the cash spigot and, you know, we're going to make the discount rate um, favorable. And I think that's what I saw today. They're going to hold a meeting on Monday, an emergency meeting at 1130 on Monday, the topic of which is going to be um, what the discount rate is going to be. And uh, the discount window, uh, to put into layman's terms, is just a big, big, giant, free spigot of unlimited money um, to anybody that needs it. That's essentially the non-precise definition of what the discount window is. It means we're just going to give you as much money as you need at whatever rate you want just to make sure everything, you know, doesn't collapse. Um, you know, it's the it's what Neil Kashkari talks about when he says the Fed has unlimited money, right? And of course, there'll be no consequences from that, right? With inflation already at 6%. It's a pretty unique set of circumstances that the Fed's in because, you know, they have room to cut rates. But even if they cut 100 basis points here, it's not going to make a difference. I mean, the damage has already been done. The pipe bomb is already going through the plumbing of the economic system. Um, I've been saying this for a while on my blog, on my Substack, that, you know, the, the economy lags so far behind the Fed's actions, their monetary policy changes, that, you know, kind of the blowups that we're seeing now may be the result of rates just going to two or two and a half or three percent. You know, <clears throat> I was reading this morning that they knew as far back as September that they were in trouble, the Silicon Valley Bank. I don't know if that's true or not, <clears throat> but you got to figure if they poured a lot of cash into treasuries at whatever, one and a half percent, it probably didn't take much of a move higher in yields for them to start feeling some pressure. So maybe they started feeling the pressure when yields went to two, two and a half percent. Um, you know, let alone, lest we forget the fact that now we are, you know, heading towards 5%. And so the, the damage that we're putting into place now, will we'll see it in the economy months from now. Um, but this Silicon Valley Bank now is, is kind of the warning that the fuse has been lit. And as I've said numerous times on my blog, Jim Chanos wrote on Twitter maybe six months ago, as a reminder, you know, that Lehman collapsed after the Fed had already pivoted. So Lehman came down after the Fed had already started easing again. All right. The Fed hasn't even pivoted yet, which means there is all kinds of creamy filling goodness in the pipes of the economy now that we still don't know about. Uh, this is the first probably of many pipe bombs to go off. But now as psychology starts to change and people are kind of on notice now that something may be fucked, something that, you know, nobody was because you got anchors on financial news networks talking about how great of a soft landing this has been so far. I guess you can throw that fucking narrative out the window, huh? Usually when the second largest bank goes tits up, it's a pretty good sign that the plans for a soft landing aren't quite going as we thought they were. Just an FYI. <laughs> There's nothing soft about a bank with $200 billion in deposits going under. 
So now market psychology is going to change. So in addition to the fact that you have all of the rate hikes that we've put into place now working their way through the system, which that in and of itself is enough to do some real damage. We haven't had rates anywhere near where they are now in a very long time. And the last time rates were at the 2.5% that probably triggered this bank meltdown. Probably wasn't even 4 or 4 and a quarter percent that triggered this meltdown. Last time we had rates at 2.5% was in 2018 and the market went down 10% in like, you know, a day or two. So uh, by itself, the idea that rates are high is a huge problem. When you add on top of that, now the, the actual contagion from the bank going under, right, which are the counterparties that I'm talking about, some of whom will go under, some of whom will scramble for cash, um, but all of which are probably working diligently this weekend to try to shore up their liquidity, their positions, their balance sheets, etc. So you have that on top of it, but then on top of that, you have the shift in behavioral sentiment. And this is the big one because we have kind of just been floating along here over the last 12 months as though nothing big has broken and everything is fine. And, you know, as Scott Wapner tweeted, Jerome Powell is a skilled pilot. You know, pretty soon he's just going to bring this puppy in for a landing. It's almost as if these people and everybody that has said, you know, that this, uh, that we were going to have a soft landing. I mean, it's almost as if they didn't understand how much debt we've really taken on and how overvalued equities truly have been over the last decade or two. But regardless, um, the setup was perfect for a pinprick to burst the bubble. And that is what we are seeing. So, psychology changing is a huge factor. It's one of those genies that once you let it out of the bottle, you can't put it back in again. It's like the inflation genie, right? Everybody talks about the fact that once everybody knows there's inflation, everybody starts expecting inflation, which means everybody starts front-loading goods, which means prices get driven up higher, which means that people selling items are more inclined to raise their prices because they're expecting prices to go higher. And that becomes a self-fulfilling cycle in and of itself. So that's like what happens when the inflation genie gets out of the bottle. And to a worse extent, down the line, once you see inflation really pick up and hyperinflation pick up, well, then you have a completely different type of psychological shift. And uh, that's when you start talking about big uh, sovereign problems and hyperinflation and things of that nature. Because once you lose control of the narrative, um, you can't you can't unfuck people's heads when it comes to it. And to some extent, that's what's going on here with the banking sector, and and I think generally what's going to go on with the market is you know for a year we've kind of been sitting by with our thumbs up our asses, telling ourselves that everything's fine, and that you know it's possible to raise rates the way we've been doing without causing a problem. I mean, many of us have been writing, you know, inflation or recession. What's it going to be? You know, or both. But it's got to be at least one. You can't hike without creating a recession. 
And you can't bring inflation down without hiking. And so the behavioral psychology change here, where all of a sudden, Monday morning, everybody's going to realize they're on notice. And it doesn't matter what the Fed does on Monday, because you still have, like I said, these pipe bombs kind of making their way through the economy. And you still have everybody waking up Monday morning feeling very different than they did, say, last Wednesday. Um, And I've talked about this a bunch of times on my podcast, and I talked about it on my Substack. But, you know, such was the case with COVID, right? For months before COVID became material to markets, I was sitting around watching the case counts spike and wondering why markets weren't responding. And then one morning you woke up and you couldn't get toilet paper. Because not only had everybody found out all of a sudden, but everybody was panicking immediately. And that's one of those things where it it takes hold very, very quickly. You know, panic can grip people quickly. It can happen in an instant. Um, and there are, you know, while one of my friends who is a fund manager, a very well-known fund manager, said to me yesterday, I think, there's no fear out there. And he's right. You know, people still aren't scared, you know, and forget about capitulation. You know, at first you get some uneasy nerves, then you get fear, then you get capitulation, then you get despair. And that's kind of when the market shoots overshoots to the downside and that's where you know you want to get long we're so far away from that it's not even on the radar it's not even on the horizon because my friend is right there is no fear out there yet but what I will say is the fuse has been lit in terms of market psychology everybody is going to be let's just say that this instant, um, this blow up of Silicon Valley Bank doesn't, uh, doesn't cause people to, you know, slash their risk tolerance by 50%. Let's just say 5%. Let's say on average, the average investor on Monday is going to be 5% more cautious than they were last week. And when you times... 5% more cautious by hundreds of millions of market participants, it's a huge deal. It doesn't have to be fear, capitulation, and despair right now. Because 5%, once it grabs hold, can very easily become 10% by the end of the week next week. Or by Tuesday, you never know. And 10 can become 20, and then all of a sudden that snowball is rolling all the way down the hill and has gotten much bigger than anybody thought it would be. And the snowball is no longer sitting at the edge of the cliff, which is where it was last week. Silicon Valley Bank has officially pushed the snowball off the cliff. And so now we're rolling. And we may start slow, but we're rolling in the wrong direction when it comes to market psychology. 
So it doesn't really matter what the Fed's going to do here, these next couple meetings. I mean, it didn't matter anyway. I've been talking about this. It, you know, people want to sit around and hold hands and sing Kumbaya and discuss whether it's going to be a zero or a 25 basis point move for rates. It's like it doesn't matter. It could be a 100 basis point cut at the next meeting and it's not going to matter. I think my friend Carol Roth tweeted uh, this morning, you know, the Fed should cut 100 basis points. And I was just thinking, yeah, all right, but, you know, it's not going to do anything. That might even incite more panic. I think if the Fed holds course, at least they then become the obvious scapegoat for why this happened. And importantly, an interesting way to look at this that, that some people aren't, because the discussion right now is, you know, do we bail out the banks or not? Can you believe we're talking about it again? Of course. But a better discussion to have would be, is there a benefit to the Fed taking the blame here? Is there a benefit to the Fed actually crashing the economy? And at first, everybody's going to say no, and nobody likes to see good, innocent people lose money, myself included and those around me included. But it will at least not chip away even further at the credibility of the Fed and the perception that the Fed may not be able to do its job. Because if the Fed comes out and tries to cut rates and and the Fed panics, you know, they say... uh, when central banks start to panic, markets ease. And when markets start to panic, central banks ease or something. There's some saying like that. I fucked that up. But the point is, um, if the if the Fed panics, uh, it could damage their credibility. Which you know, over the course of the long term, I don't know how much credibility they have left. But if they if they're interested in in kind of keeping and maintaining their gravitas and keeping the illusion that they have a spine you know then they then they should come out next week and say hey well we're gonna lower the discount rate but you know we can't make cuts like this is uh we need inflation to come down i mean that would be crazy uh i think a lot of politicians heads would blow off but it would be a pretty unprecedented step for the central bank it would be the opposite of what everybody's expecting from them which is for them to fold like a cheap paper suit And so, so now we're having the discussion about bailouts again and whether or not we should bail this bank out. And, and the answer is, you know, to the extent that there's uninsured deposits over $250,000. And the answer is, of course, we shouldn't bail them out. You know, the, the idea is, oh, well, these companies were kind of forced to keep their capital there as a condition of this bank lending to them. Hey, that's you sign on the dotted line. That's how it happens. You know, it's their terms and the companies agreed to them. They wanted the capital. Listen, I've borrowed money before on terrible terms. You know, it is what it is. I didn't repay half the loan and then turn around and claim how unfair things were because I knew the terms when I signed up for it. It sucks, but when you need the cash, 
You have to pay whatever the cost of capital is. And when two parties agree to that, that's their business. It has nothing to do with the taxpayer, you know, bailing these companies out. First off, we don't have any fucking money right now, okay? Uh, We have no money. We have record debt in the country. We are sending a record amount of money overseas. You know, Biden is furiously working toward trying to bring in more tax receipts. I mean, it's just a, it's a spend extravaganza and a, uh, and the government has its hands deep in the pockets of the people. And so we don't need to be paying for one other mistake like this, the likes of which most American taxpayers had nothing to do with. You know, this isn't, this doesn't have anything to do with the taxpayer. You know, this bank lent to the world's worst companies, I'm sure. You didn't go out and lend to the world's worst companies. I didn't. You know, I may trade like an asshole, but that's my money. When I lose it, you know, I got nobody to blame but myself. I don't go around with my hand out asking for a bailout. When you make mistakes, you own up to it. And when you when you make good decisions, you reap the rewards. But again, now we're going back to this idea of privatizing profits and socializing losses. Why? Well, because good people lost money. Well, it happens. It's an economy. You know, it's a zero-sum game. At some point, somebody somewhere has to pay the piper. If it's not the uh, Silicon Valley Bank and VC startups, it'll be the International Federation of Orthodontists. And if it's not them, it'll be whatever, the teachers union. And if it's not them, it'll be Goldman Sachs' trading desk. You know, the, the point is when you're allocating capital, you're giving your money to somebody, you have to <clears throat> do a certain degree of due diligence and you accept a certain amount of risk. And uh, and that's just the way that the financial world goes. And it's, it's an unfair lesson, I'm sure, for many people that banked with these guys. And... Uh, I hate seeing it. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I don't celebrate this stuff. I mean, <clears throat> you know, this blow up and the blow ups that will come. I mean, we're we're in an in, in inevitability of higher rates. I mean, just basically a mathematic guarantee. The basics of just boom and bust cycles. You know, and it's great when everybody's happy and we're going through a boom, and it sucks. When people have to lose capital, and especially when good people lose money, good people lose assets, good people lose their houses, uh, it's devastating. But it's the way an economy works. And if we're going to suggest that every time any entity loses capital or there's collateral damage somewhere, that the government has to fix it and the rest of the taxpayers have to absorb the blow, you just move one step closer to not even having an economy. I mean, an economy is characterized by trillions of transactions that happen every second, right? <clears throat> from, uh, what does he say in hackers? From multi-million dollar deals to the 10 bucks some guy pays for gas. But that's essentially what the economy is, right? It's every toll that I'm paying right now on the highway. It's the lunch I'm about to go pick up. 
It's, you know, the pizzeria paying the gas bill at the place where I'm going to. It's you investing at home in your E-Trade account. It's the corporations that you're investing in and, you know, the strip club bills that they're putting on their corporate credit cards. I mean, that, that's what the economy is. And <clears throat> the economy is characterized by, by swings and by cycles because that's what happens when cash is moving, right? You have the velocity of cash. You have money kind of moving its way through the plumbing of the economy. I give five bucks to the guy here at the gas station. He turns around, gives the same five bucks to somebody else to buy a pack of cigarettes. That guy takes that five bucks to his local bar, gives it to his bartender as a tip. The bartender turns around, gives it to their landlord as rent. The landlord takes that rent money and puts it toward a student loan that they're trying to pay off. That's how the economy works. Cash moves. And there are volatile kind of stop and go points in an economy. There are points when people borrow and they they use credit where they can, you know, disperse and 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 spend more capital than they have, and there's times when people want to tighten their belts like, you know, we're having now, and savings starts to stockpile up and and psychology changes and behavior changes and and that's the way things go. The economy moves in swings from side to side, it moves in cycles. It's lumpy. But as you start to advocate for the taxpayer bailing out banks or bailing out any businesses that fail, all you're doing is encouraging the economy to eventually go from being, you know, an ocean where you have waves of capital kind of crashing onto shore and going in and going out and, you know, essentially a vibrant economy, right? Vibrant meaning there's a lot of action. You go from that to just being a pond where water just sits still and things just become tepid and the economy eventually slows down and dies and the state controls everything and, you know, quality of life suffers and a lot of other good, innocent people. I mean, this is kind of the the irony of it all, right? That, that bailouts are supposed to protect innocent people by doing what? Well, by taking from other innocent people that had nothing to do with the fact that there was a bank collapse. So you're unfairly punishing one group of people to atone for the losses that another group of people are are, are feeling. And that's, uh, aside from being a way to kind of turn the economy into a tepid pond, um, you know, as Margaret Thatcher said, eventually you just run out of other people's money. Um, and so it's a, it's a terrible idea and it's a discussion that we're going to see ad nauseum, I'm sure here coming up over the next few weeks, if not months, if not quarters. And, you know, the discussion about moral hazard will also take place. I'm certain there's going to be a lot of talk about it. You know, I'm I'm not happy about the fact that this bank collapsed. You know, I, I don't, all things being equal, I would hope that that things like this wouldn't need, wouldn't happen or wouldn't need to happen, but they do because that's how an economy works. And it was just a given that with rates where they are, we're going to see way more of this. The pressure is going to ratchet higher now because now that that psychological snowball has kind of rolled down the hill, the first couple of feet, now all of a sudden it's on its way down and there's no stopping it. 
So we'll have to see how Monday shapes up. You know, personally, I don't know what I'll do if I'll write something for Monday. I probably won't because I'm pretty busy. But uh, oh, I have a couple of nice pieces that I read. Uh, one from the Brownstone Institute. Maybe I'll publish that. But we'll have to see what the Fed does. My first inclination is that no matter what the Fed does, I don't think things are going to get better right away. And so to the extent that there's a rally on Monday, I will probably try to fade it. Um, you know, lest we forget, I said to my friend, the hedge fund manager a couple of days ago that S&P earnings are still at, you know, 18 times. So we're not in deep value territory here. So the people that are rooting for a Fed bailout, not only are they rooting for a bailout, they're rooting for a bailout of equities at super sky high prices. Right. You'd want the Fed to step in, you know, when equities are at eight times earnings. So it's like, OK, you know, maybe it kind of feels like we're buying a bottom. But what do you hope for now in an equity bailout? You hope you hope for stocks to go from 18 to 25 X again? Uh, I don't know, especially with earnings likely to decline over the next year. So that multiple will expand. So I don't know. There's, there's a real case for, you know, a Japan style event where. The market just kind of floats around and does nothing for a while if the Fed tries to bail it out here, I think. Uh, either way, I would be remain skeptical of any type of rallies in the equity markets, regardless of what the Fed does. I mean, if they came out and cut 250 basis points on Monday and said we're going to flood the market with unlimited cash, I mean, first off, you know, gold would go to 3000 overnight. Um, which is why I'm happy to be long miners, as always, uh, in gold and silver. But uh, even then, I, I would still be skeptical on equities. You know, we're, we're so far from value territory, people have no idea. People think that we, we, we've experienced over the last year is a bear market, this brutal bear market. We haven't seen shit. I mean, maybe the first inkling of fear off in the distance, but definitely not fear, Definitely not capitulation, and we're definitely nowhere near despair. And so there's, in my opinion, there's no rush to get out there and, and jump into equities. There are things that I own that I'll continue to buy. I'll buy them if they go down. The types of stocks that I talked about on my Substack, that link is in my podcast description. You know, things like miners, I'll just continue to buy no matter where they go. Uh, you know, I like defense stocks. There's a couple other names that I like uh, that I've written about. Things that I'm willing to kind of buy at any price. But other than that, you know, when you talk about something like tech stocks and you're talking about multiples between 20 and 30, I just think there's absolutely no rush to be back into equities. So uh, a lot of people message me, oh, do a podcast, take a victory lap. I don't want to take a victory lap. I'm not happy that people are losing money. It sucks this has to happen, but I can't say that I'm surprised. So uh, I was talking to Palisades Gold Radio today. I might jump on with them over the next week or so. I apologize for the wait in doing a podcast. I'll be turning returning to a regularly uh, kind of regular schedule again here over the next couple of weeks. I appreciate your guys' patience with me, and I appreciate you guys continuing to listen and uh, and support the podcast. All right, fools, I'm out. Peace.